What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. So Dean's going away a lot, huh? On business trips? Dad. Raise your hand if that sounds fishy. He's not like you. He's a good guy, a great dad. Sure, it's nature. Males are forced to fight, to dominate, and to impregnate all females. That a conversation you've had with your daughters, Josh? I I wouldn't make it to the end of that sentence in my house, Adam. (laughs) Bill Murray and Rashida Jones in that clip from On the Rocks, the latest from Sofia Coppola. It's currently playing in limited release and comes to Apple TV Plus this weekend. We've got a review. We'll also talk about Lena Wertmuller's Seven Beauties, which is the next title in our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon. That and more. It's nature, Adam. Podcasters are forced to fight. Ahead on Film Spotting. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. We will get to that conversation about Lena Wertmuller's Seven Beauties later in the show, a movie that received four Oscar nominations back in 1977. And I'm just checking my notes here. Got a, is this a yikes emoji from you, Josh, over at Letterboxd? <laughs> yeah, that that basically means, oh boy, now, now I've got to write about this. <laughs> Well, I'm very eager now for that discussion. Along with that, we'll have some thoughts on a new doc that came to Amazon Prime last weekend. It's called Time. And Josh, you caught up with Borat. Mm, Another yikes emoji. (laughs) Lots of yikes later in the show. But first, our thoughts on whether or not Sofia Coppola and Bill Murray managed some lost in translation magic with their latest collaboration on The Rocks. Maybe he's just not interested in me anymore. Impossible. A woman's that are most beautiful between the ages of 35 and 39. Great. So I have many months left. Really? You're back in town. Been busy? Yeah. Got a lot going on. Do you? He should be worshiping the ground you walk on. And if he's doing something dishonorable, you need to know. What if Dean's just busy? I'm in a rut. That's it. I think we should follow him. What? I think you better see him in action. This is your idea of incognito? Coming through! Here's the plaza. This is the place to have an affair. It has the most exits. Exits on three streets. Can you just act a little less excited about this? Because this is my life. It might be falling apart. In his book, The Tao of Bill Murray, Gavin Edwards chronicles eyewitness accounts of the iconic actor popping up at parties, weddings, basketball games, and the like, surprising and blessing the gatherings with his particular brand of pleasant anarchy. The book also quotes Groundhog Day screenwriter Danny Rubin saying this, I've always believed that the way he walks into a room and shakes things up had less to do with his desire to be the center of attention and was more to create a playful atmosphere in which to dwell. 
Now, that seems right to me, Adam, based solely on his on-screen performances. Even the dour and morose ones have a particular Murray twinkle to them, creating an atmosphere in which we want to dwell. Well, there is a lot of twinkle to his performance in Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks. He plays Felix, an aging art dealer and rapscallion father to Laura, played by Rashida Jones, a novelist, wife, and mother of two. When Laura begins to suspect her husband, Dean, played by Marlon Wayans, of having an affair, she turns to Felix for advice, given that she's well aware he has experience in extramarital activities. Now, much of On the Rocks consists of Jones and Murray bantering together as he swoops in on her days, sometimes wanted, sometimes not, to warmly deliver antiquated gender notions in a very Murray-esque way. I think the two are good together, but Murray is also insistent in a way, aggressive even, that sometimes seemed off to me. It went beyond the qualities of his questionable character. And sometimes while watching On the Rocks, I wondered, could there be such a thing as too much Bill Murray? It pains me to ask this, especially in the context of a Sofia Coppola movie. Her Lost in Translation, along with Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums, is a key text in Murray's transformation from brilliant comic presence to brilliant tragicomic actor. I was giddy upon hearing that they were teaming up again, especially given how much I also love Coppola's films without Murray. Those might have been unfair expectations. Lost in Translation is something truly special, and when compared to Coppola's other efforts, On the Rocks is clearly a work of smaller scale and ambition. But I still have to ask, Adam, is it possible Bill Murray outstays his welcome here? No, it's not possible. At least that's not the experience I had with On the Rocks. Of course, from a narrative standpoint, you could make the case that if he does, it might be appropriate. There's a certain trajectory to that character and his relationship with his daughter, Laura. But I think your question is an astute one, though, because if this movie really doesn't work for someone, I imagine that Murray's charms wearing thin could be the main reason. That wasn't the case with me, though, Josh. His act is the biggest reason I actually like the movie and can recommend it. I'd even call this take on the CAD the Lothario, pretty low key, because I feel like it's in a minor key for a lot of the film as well. So I hear what you're saying. I'm going to probably echo even some of the comments from the book that you shared, even though I have never read it before. But I didn't feel the insistence quite as powerfully, I guess, as you did. You can certainly point to many scenes in this movie where he does make himself the center of attention, but there's a bit of resignation to it all. It's not like he's going through the motions or he isn't committed. I mean, Felix or Murray, but he's just not completely imposing his will and energy on everyone around him. And that's that's one of the lines you mentioned, right? This notion that he's actually inviting people in as opposed to making it all about him. I felt that certainly watching On the Rocks. I think part of it is the focus he has on his daughter, on Rashida Jones. That's the attention he's really seeking. It's not from the rest of the world. It's really her. And he truly is listening, right? Unlike not just her husband, but most every other adult in her life. But there is also this idea that he's kind of just being who he is, for better or for worse. And I think that Murray shows us in some really subtle ways that Felix is someone who has felt and is still feeling some heartbreaks of his own, in addition to being someone who is usually the one breaking other people's hearts. And I'm not surprised at this point 
by the layers that Murray brings to this performance. We could certainly make comparisons to other very good performances that he's given us. But Felix still, to me, Josh, I'll be curious to get your sense. He felt unique or I guess uniquely Murray-esque. And that all said, those layers on display, it's still fun watching him play the cat. There's a scene where he talks himself out of a traffic ticket. That might be the most unrealistic part of this movie. Coincidence certainly plays into his favor here. But Coppola does establish that these types of coincidences seem to occur daily for Felix. Luck, I suppose, being the residue of design, as it were. But it also absolutely seems believable in the moment because of Murray. You do accept that if anybody could do what we just saw him do, yeah, it would be Felix. And I think that actually does come back to the idea of focus and listening. That trick only works on the cop and on us as viewers if something authentic and genuine really comes through. And I think it's the way Felix never takes his eyes off the officer, the way he only makes it about him personally, if that leads to a detail that makes it personal for the officer. So, you know, he's a con man, like a lot of Murray characters, like Peter Vinkman is even in Ghostbusters, of course, right? In some ways, there's definitely a connection. But there's never any doubt that everything someone like Peter Venkman is saying is to get what he wants. And with Felix, I actually believe or buy that it's about the actual connection. Maybe understanding that by making that genuine connection, he's going to eventually get what he wants, but he's absolutely willing to at least put in the work. And I think that that counts for something, Josh, or maybe I'm just an easy mark myself <laughs> for Bill Murray. But, you know, as I think about it, I realize I've basically just described the trajectory for Phil Connors in Groundhog Day, right? From from that kind of selfish cad to someone who actually cares about connection and is willing to put in the work and is actually listening. So yeah, I guess I'm putting Felix on a spectrum with a lot of other great Murray characters and performances, but as I said, felt unique to me and is really what did carry my enjoyment of this movie. Well, I think the notion of putting it on the spectrum is helpful here because by no means am I saying this is necessarily a bad Murray performance. I am just holding it up against not only all of his other films, but specifically the ones that he's done with Coppola. And maybe that is what's holding me back a little bit. There there are actually two other Coppola movies we should probably bring into this conversation. One is Without Murray. That's somewhere where Stephen Dorff plays an actor who spends some days with his younger daughter. So you have a parent-child relationship there. Um, but also the Netflix special, A Very Murray Christmas, which does feature Bill Murray. I think it came out, if it wasn't last winter, it was the winter before, I think. And there you get, you know, the public persona Murray, where he is just spending this night going from one gathering to the other, having a great time with celebrity friends. And I would say that this film, On the Rocks, the Murray performance is way closer on the Coppola spectrum to A Very Merry Christmas than something in Lost in Translation. Again, that's not necessarily a negative because you could do worse than spend you know, a holiday night hanging out with Bill Murray being a rapscallion. Uh, and that's what we get here. And it is fun in a lot of ways. But you don't have – I guess where I differ with you is I didn't find – Felix quite as interesting or quite as unique in the Murray canon. And there's, you know, in Lost in Translation, it's a little unfair to compare the two because he led with the misery there, right? That character's moroseness and the mm -hmm. offbeat charm kind of slipped out um, between those elements. And here we kind of get the charm 
first and foremost. We understand this guy is, you know, maybe not the greatest dad, hasn't been the greatest husband. It's not that the film doesn't recognize that, but he's definitely leading with the charm. And that did carry me along for quite a ways. I think it helps that he and Rashida Jones, um, you know, have real chemistry here in this relationship. I think there is some sweetness to it. That's where somewhere comes in for me, Adam. I think there's genuinely some moments of sweetness between them. Um, Mm -hmm. So I do like them quite a bit together. Um, It's just that I do wish Murray had been more willing I feel like Coppola is interested in poking the Murray persona a little bit here, Um, you know, and kind of looking beneath the charm. And the movie is a little more interested in that than Murray himself quite seems to be. I do think he's invested. I'm not saying Hmm. he's just coasting through this, but I don't know how willing he is to kind of um, deflate that persona. You mentioned how there's some some heartbreak to the character. I really think we only get it in one scene um, where he talks about the woman who he left his family for years before mm-hmm. when when Laura was young um, and how he learned they didn't end up staying together, he and this woman, and he learned that she had since died. And he shares this real sense of mourning with Laura. And at the same time, we have sympathy for him, but we also recognize in that moment how monstrous it is of him to to load this onto Laura when it just brings up all her hurt, right? From how the family was hurt by that. That's an incredibly nuanced, interesting, layered performance. And I think as far as Felix is concerned, it might be the only one that is that complicated we get from him in the film. Well, it's the most complicated moment in the film by far. And it's one of the reasons why I really like that moment. But I felt that sense of sadness in Murray in a way, obviously, that you didn't and certainly felt it much earlier in the film. And maybe part of this is I was just rewatching even the trailer today to refresh my memory on some of the scenes and moments. And I think they show the first moment in the film where we actually see Murray appear on screen. We hear him on the phone first, and then he pulls up. He's being driven in this car, and he rolls down the window, and his daughter's out on the street. And she says, hey, Dad. And he says, Hey, kiddo. And just the way he says it for me, that's not leading with charm. I really sense so many of those moments where he is kind of making that connection. He's actually trying to listen. He knows what she's going through and isn't trying to overpower it, isn't trying to overpower the moment with charm. So I guess I was a little bit more aligned with his character than you. And yes, I was thinking a lot about Lost in Translation as well, probably because it's my favorite Sofia Coppola film, but also because it's the most recent Sofia Coppola film I've seen. I think we reconsidered that movie for A Sacred Cow just in the past couple of years, maybe more recently even than seeing The Beguiled. And I don't know, there was something fun for me about seeing this movie. And this is potentially totally half-baked, Josh. You can completely write this off and tell me how I'm wrong. But There was something in the moment I felt that I haven't completely been able to articulate seeing this movie as kind of a spiritual sequel to Lost in Translation. And it isn't just Murray's performance or just Murray appearing here as one of the actors. The circumstances, of course, are very different. We have the father and daughter here. They're not stuck in a single location together most of the movie. But it still felt to me like an older, wiser freer Bob, the Bob in a way I'd like to believe he could maybe Hmm. go on to be maybe even after having this encounter and this experience with Charlotte. And here we've got Laura, who seems to me a little bit of an older, wiser, 
freer even or more more comfortable with herself charlotte she's still struggling though they're both still struggling with this sense of disconnection this inability to have really true artistic outlets and expression and as i said it was just something i was actually kind of aware of as i was watching the movie is seeing these characters as extensions in some kind of parallel universe to bob and charlotte yeah i think i think that's inevitable and i can i think i can see more bob becoming felix you know in, in a sad way that that would almost hmm. i think he'd be i think he would be a less sure of himself Felix, though, but I can see this trajectory where he did end up leaving the family that we hear him talking to in Lost in Translation and ends up essentially alone. But I don't know that Bob Harris would be this, though there are shades of sadness to Felix. I don't think that he'd be this content because we mostly seem to get the picture that Felix you know, is pretty happy with this life alone mm-hmm. he has. Um, I think he's accepted himself. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's a distinction there. As far as Charlotte being Laura, I don't know because, see, Laura to me, and here's where we can talk the sec- talk about the other main performance that we might split on, because um, I think Rashida Jones is really good here. Laura to me is almost a woman who is more adrift despite more years of experience um, and more quote unquote accomplishments and a more possibly rooted family structure than Charlotte yeah. had. She she seems very adrift where she is right now as an artist, as a novelist, as a mother, um, certainly as a wife. That's the central crux of this film. And mm-hmm. and um, I guess part of me, maybe it's just I, I hope Charlotte would have ended up in a, a more secure place having had that experience. But, but how did you feel about Jones? Because she's an interesting actor to me in that I've always liked her, but she's always seemed to be a bit of a misfit in the things I know her the best from. So like Parks and Rec or The Office, which are, you know, a little more heightened goofiness than the range Rashida Jones necessarily seems to work best in. And I just think this is a really nice match for her. It's not necessarily a a serious drama. I mean, she, she could very well be capable of doing that, but it's sort of a different comedic tone that I think Coppola brings to this, a lightness mm-hmm. rather than a goofiness. Um, I think Coppola's feel for for feminine interiority is, is a real opportunity for Jones to do some more subtle work. And I just feel like she's found her register here. There's a richness mm-hmm. that's kind of missing from some of the other characters that Rashida Jones has played. And obviously it's been in all different material, but but this this is, you know, her at her best that I've seen. Mm. Yeah, that line of yours about interiority, I think, transitions nicely into what I would say, and I'll get to Jones through Murray here a bit. There's a moment between the two of them where they're at a restaurant. I think it's the first day where they have reunited, and he takes her out to lunch, and she's telling him about some of Dean's behaviors, and he raises his hand and says, you know, is it just me or raise your hand if... If all of this sounds fishy and it's obviously just Felix being playful and being sarcastic there and being a bit of a showman. But actually, it occurred to me how much he is kind of like the audience surrogate throughout this entire movie. And in that moment, right, he's speaking to all of us as viewers. And he throughout this whole film is pulling at the strings, loosely holding this marriage together. He's questioning the things that she's seeing, but denying And in that way, he's not just our surrogate, but he's also kind of another half of her. He's part of her subconscious 
it seemed to me where those alarm bells are really going off, where mm-hmm. everything is all about reacting on instinct and not overly intellectualizing it or trying to rationalize and deny. And I think that's where Joan's performance is so good because she pulls off that inner conflict. She really has these conflicted feelings you can tell about her father but also about her husband and her marriage and men in general. And I love the way that whenever he says something that maybe is a little bit sexist or a lot sexist or brings up some of those really tough emotional feelings for her, maybe calls on their past together and their family experience, she never she never reacts in a way that expresses kind of, you know, shock or dismay. She understands who her father is, but she knows there's some truth to what he is saying, but she never also lets him totally get away with it. Like mm-hmm. she is not afraid at any moment to call him on his BS and to call him on the the consequences of his actions. And I guess I'm trying to suggest that Rashida Jones handles that really nicely because there's a version of this character that maybe could come off as too much of a scold and she has the balance perfect. Yeah. As you're talking, I'm realizing, I think that's the reason why, to go back to my question, I don't think I would say Murray outstays his welcome here either, um, despite the fact that I wondered about it watching, is exactly because Jones as Laura doesn't go either direction that you're talking about. She could completely be charmed. I think the worst direction would not to be the scold, but to Mm -hmm. be like so dad. Yeah. Like dad, come on dad. And like, Mm -hmm. then we really would, would kind of like, at least I feel like my hackles would get up and he would seem even more Mm -hmm. of, of too much. But I think Jones plays off him and bounces back against what Murray is doing in in exactly the right register as well and is probably why the performance his performance even works as well for me as it does. So we disagree a little bit on Murray's charms, but we both do kind of like the movie. For sure. Yeah. All right. On the Rocks is out now in limited release and exclusively playing on Apple TV+. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. An extremely funny voices edition of Massacre Theater is up next. I hope I can do it justice. Plus, a provocative, controversial, and vulgar political comedy. Yes, the new Borat, but also the latest in our overlooked auteurs marathon, Lena Wertmuller's Seven Beauties. Stay with us. Humble yourself before the power of your pursuits The likely in the end going to get the best of you That's what she told me just before she said don't give up Lord knows I'd love to have suffered long enough Cause I can't make enough money for the family Shame to leave the game that's always been such a part of me Some bring home the gold for a shined up piece of shit I just keep on keeping on getting over it Hey there buddy who invited you anyway I released a movie film which brought great shame to Kazakhstan. But now I was instructed to return to Yankee Land to carry out secret missions. I go to America! 
That's from the trailer for Borat Subsequent Movie Film. I don't know if the movie's any good. The title is fantastic. It's Not the bad. sequel to the 2006 box office hit and cultural phenomenon. Subsequent Movie Film came exclusively to Amazon Prime this weekend. Josh, you are a big fan of the original Borat. Mm-hmm. By my math, your number six film of 2006, and you recently rewatched it, at least according to Letterboxd, gave it a four and a half star rating that suggests that you still loved it or maybe even liked it a little bit more. Did that maybe somehow shroud your viewing of this film, comparing them against each other? Subsequent movie film subsequently couldn't live up. I mean, I really think I think there's two factors at play here for my disappointment with subsequent movie film. And one is just the timing of it. And the second is where my particular barometer for the place we're living in, the country we're living in right now is at. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if if you're you're not overflowing with exhaustion over it, this might be cathartic because it's it, it, the politics are still in the same place, right? Skewering um, what Sasha Baron Cohen finds as uh, intolerance, misogyny, and hate in America. Now, go back to 2006 when Borat first came out. And to me, at least, this is maybe part of my ignorance, but to me, he seemed to be digging this stuff out of pockets of America and saying, hey, pay attention. This is here, right? Um, mm-hmm. Look at what's going on in your country. And it was alarming. And it was an expose. Um we, what he found then, we have been awash in in recent years in this country. It's been, um, you know, given a megaphone by social media. There's people have political power with these views now. And so we're in a completely different place. And that is not to say I wrote off subsequent movie film as not having any potential for being important. I was really excited about it. But the experience of watching it, it no longer feels like an expose, right? You can't expose people who've been walking around with their pants down for four years already. This is what we've been, we know all this. Um, and so there was something to me that was sad about the experience rather than cathartic, rather hmm. than alarming or alerting or kind of felt like was waking me up. Um now, other people are experiencing it differently. It's been getting um, some early good reviews. Um, and so, again, goes back to maybe where I'm at, where my headspace is. But let me just give you one example from the new film and how it doesn't really resonate with me. So in one bit, another you know staged bit, Cohen puts on a Ku Klux Klan robe and walks into the lobby of the Conservative Political Action Conference, okay? And... You, you might say maybe in 2006, like, wow, that's brazen. What is this saying about this political movement? Well, in, in the same week that this movie comes out, we have a U.S. senator during a Supreme Court nomination hearing say, this is Lindsey Graham, refer to the good old days of segregation. I mean, th- this is like right out there. And so what is the point of what Cohen is doing when we have this same there's nothing being revealed here. There's nothing being exposed. And so there was just kind of a sadness that I felt watching the film. There are some funny parts still. I mean, Cohen, you know, here this will give you an idea where I am in my headspace, too. The funniest thing for me is when Borat takes a job as a barber and he proceeds to every snip he does of his first customer's hair. He, like, holds it in front of him for his approval and shows it to him. And this happens like six or seven times. Just that sort of silly humor. There's a lot of that in the film that still works. Um, but even gotcha gags involving Pence and Rudy Giuliani, 
those kind of fell flat to me because again, we know who these people are. We know the forces behind them. Um, we've been living under them for a while and I don't know what Cohen could have done with that reality and this character that might've felt more, um, cathartic for me. Um, but this, this attempt Mm -hmm. just didn't work. Now, let this be the only time ever on the show that I remotely come to the defense of Lindsey Graham. But there's a reading of that line where it's very clear that he's being sarcastic when he says that. I understand. In the framing of his question. I understand that's the defense. But, Adam, would you ever use that language in any context? (laughs) No. Okay. No, I wouldn't. Okay. Okay. We We can move on because I would really hate if someone thought... That I wanted to defend in any way, <laughs> Senator Lindsey Graham. But I, I know the context that he was asking that, and it, it seems reasonable to suggest that he knew he knew what he was saying in that moment. But Josh, I think your points about Borat are very valid, and I'm a little bit hesitant to watch it myself, only because I didn't really even like the first one that much, and I'm just one of those people who has an innate kind of rejection of the type of humor that is predicated on awkwardness mm-hmm. and not even so much cruelty, but just just awkwardness because the people in these movies deserve it for the most part, right? But it's just that kind of awkwardness and discomfort. That's not a space I'm usually very comfortable to exist in, even from the comfort of my couch. Yeah, there is there is more of that there. That's an interesting question. The one of the people deserve it. That that sometimes involves some investigation after the fact of like, mm-hmm. how were these people invited towards the filming? What did they think they were getting into? And um, that could be a little bit sketchy. The more you read about it, sometimes, sometimes not. Sometimes it's like you get Rudy Giuliani to say yes <laughs> and to this interview, and he should know what he's getting into, and you don't feel mm-hmm. sorry for him at all. But there's definitely cringe comedy at work here as there was in the first one. So I don't know that this would get your approval any more than the original Mm -hmm. Borat did, Adam. Well, I get to say it maybe for the last time this year, Borat subsequent movie film is currently available on Amazon Prime. My name is Sybil Richardson and uh, my family is awaiting on a ruling regarding my husband's matter. I was just wondering if you might have any information on, like, an update on it. If no, we don't have anything yet with this on Monday. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. Okay. All have right. Have weekend. Bye-bye. That's from the trailer for the award-winning documentary Time. It came to Amazon Prime last weekend and is directed by Garrett Bradley, who used footage shot over two decades to tell the story of Sybil Richardson. She's also known as Fox Rich and her efforts to get her husband released from prison. Now, Time won the U.S. Documentary Directing Award at this year's Sundance Film Festival. Adam, you saw it a little bit before I did. Would you say it should be eligible for a Film Spotting Golden Brick Award as well? Yeah, I would. I think this movie deserves a lot more time than I know I'm prepared to give it at the moment, but I am pretty confident. I'll be curious for your take, Josh, that we're going to have a chance to discuss it a little bit later when we get to our Golden Brick nominees for the year. I think it should at least be in the conversation. One of the things we always talk about with that annual award we give out is the vision, the artistry, a new or emerging filmmaker making some bold choices. And Time is a documentary that would be probably a pretty great, harrowing, sad, inspiring story, even if it was conventionally made. But Bradley detaching us from that conventionality, which 
in this case specifically means, and often does, from a linear structure, kind of a cause and effect progression, it allows this movie to float poetically between present and past that gives us an emotional sense of what this struggle has meant for Fox Rich and her family. Not a catalog of events, not showing us what has transpired, what they've suffered through and overcome, but I think as close to what it must feel like to exist in this sort of purgatory, this kind of haze of regret and longing, but also real joy too. Our friend David Ehrlich had a great term for it in his letterboxed review of this movie, gave it four and a half stars. He's a big fan of the film as well. He described the editing as Trafalmadorian. And I had to go back to my Kurt Vonnegut in Slaughterhouse-Five to remind myself of the reference. But Trafalmadorians are, in Vonnegut's world, are people who have the ability to experience reality in four dimensions. They can access the past, present, and the future kind of at will and perceive it all together. That's, that's kind of the experience of watching time, at least it was for me, in the way it incorporates the present-day footage we're seeing with this kind of wished-for future that they're almost visualizing, you know, and hoping for, but then with liberal use of that footage from the past, this camcorder footage, really from a time before smartphones and all the ways we could catalog our daily emotions and activities, it very clearly was an outlet for her simply to express herself. And I was really taken with this approach to time. Well, to express herself and to stay connected to her husband, Rob, right? Because my yes. impression was she's making these videos and then would send them to him right. um, as kind of diaries that he could then share, show their children growing up. And I think that's one of this amazing woman's achievements is not only the the legal effort that she made, but also being able to sustain a family over all of these years, sustain her marriage, sustain the relationship with her husband and the father of their children so that they're still a unit. You get the impression mm -hmm. that they are a, these these four kids are a strong unit with their parents, despite being separated over all these years. You use the word floats, Adam, and that is so perfect because the movements in and out of present day to past are very gentle that way. Um, and a lot of that is in the editing. Garrett Bradley working here with Gabriel Rhodes on the editing and the transitions between the contemporary footage is just this gorgeous, rich, crisp black and white. And mm -hmm. then, as you said, it's camcorder footage from years earlier. So that's rougher and grainier. Um, but we kind of slide easily from right. one to the other. And it's really beautifully done. I have to credit, I have been just kind of consumed with the piano music that is used in this film. And I oh, yeah. looked at looked it up afterwards. It's very airy and kind of ecstatic. Shocked, maybe people are familiar, to learn that this music comes from the 60s, composed, performed by, I'm going to try this name, Emahoy Segway Miriam Guabrao, an Ethiopian nun, Adam, now I believe in her 90s. And this it's a little jazzy, but not entirely. It's It floats, as you said. Mm -hmm. It just floats as the film does. And it is 
beautiful, beautiful music that Bradley uses to kind of cohere this movement through time together. So, yeah, really impressive. Not necessarily a debut. I think Bradley has a number of shorts, some TV work, and I think even a feature or two, um, but really has been only working since 2009. So I'd agree this this should go in in the grouping with the other Golden Brick nominees for 2020. And if you are an Amazon Prime subscriber, you can see time for free right now. Next week on our show, Josh, it will drop on Halloween Eve, Friday the 30th. And our Halloween theme top five is currently high concept horror. Now, you and our producer, Sam, seem in lockstep on this. I have not given it really a second of thought. Do you want to explain it to our listeners? Well, yeah, Sam came up with this. I do love it. It's inspired by the upcoming film Bad Hair from director Justin Simeon, who made Dear White People. Uh, That just finished its run at the Chicago International Film Festival. It'll be coming to Hulu, actually, this weekend. And the idea there is high-concept horror. It's basically a weave has a mind of its own. So Mm. I, the way I can have kind of been thinking about this is if you can describe the concept of the horror film in a phrase like that, right? you've got high concept horror. So it doesn't depend on elaborate mythology that you need to understand or a convoluted plot. It's just a phrase you spit out there and immediately you have a sense of what sort of movie this is. I think a lot of horror works this way, so we should have a bunch to choose from. It should be fun. By that logic then, though, something like guy escapes from asylum and tries to exact revenge on babysitters living in his former hometown. That doesn't qualify. Too many words for high concept. That felt a little bit like a run on sentence to me. So, (laughs) of course, I'm also just really bad at this, obviously. (laughs) Well, Halloween, I guess, will not make our top five list of high concept horror films. We'd love to hear your suggestions, feedback at filmspotting.net. We will also wrap up our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon, another one in the books almost, Josh, with 1991's Daughters of the Dust, directed by Julie Dash. That is one you have seen, the only one of the films in this marathon that I think you had seen before. Accurate? Yeah, but I'm really excited to help you cross it off your list. We will also hand out the coveted Marathon Awards. We need, as always, good name suggestions. We could go with the Meshes, like Meshes of the Afternoon, the Darrens, the Wandas, the Daisies, or maybe there's something obvious that we're overlooking, Josh. Yeah, sort of a tough one because you don't necessarily, those are all good suggestions, but want to mm. elevate one film above all right. the others because for the most part, I think we've been pretty astonished by all of them fairly equally. So I'm sure listeners will have a good suggestion for us. I think there has to be an answer somewhere in the notion of potatoes. Okay, could be. Something you're, something in Jean Dielman's Jean Dielman, you're going, yes. Yeah, is going to have to define these awards since there's a really good chance that Jean Dielman is going to run away with a lot of the categories for me. We will also, on next week's show, share the results of our current film spotting poll. This has been a fun one. Zombie movies versus vampire movies. And looking at the current standings, it makes sense, Josh. Zombies, slow and steady, yet still extremely deadly. Trying to close the gap on the swifter vampires. We did mention last week that Jim Jarmusch was the rare filmmaker who had made both vampire and zombie movies, Only Lovers Left Alive and The Dead Don't Die. And as expected, because our listeners are smarter than us, we got some replies revealing to us some filmmakers that we overlooked, and we would like to share those with you now. 
Let's hear from Aaron. Hubie Halloween was not too terrible. New Earth in Orange County, California. I'm sure, Aaron, you want that on your headstone. Since you asked for it, yes, there are a few directors that have made both vampire and zombie films. Zombie maestro George A. Romero, of course, has his zombie classics, but he also made 1977's Martin, about a man who believes himself to be a vampire. Robert Rodriguez has the wonderful genre mashup from Dusk Till Dawn featuring vampires as well as his half of Grindhouse, the zombie film Planet Terror. Fred Decker put together cult favorites Night of the Creeps and The Monster Squad, the former featuring brain parasites turning people into zombies, while the latter involves Count Dracula attempting to take over a small town unless some kids can stop him. And for the record, it's better than The Goonies. Zing. Aaron. Italian horror filmmaker Lucio Fulci made the film that gave us Shark vs. Zombie with Zombie, also known as Zombie 2, as well as Dracula in the Provinces. That's what I have offhand, Aaron continues, without doing more research, but those are some notable names in the genre and the horror world. And just to add, I'm also in the zombie films are better camp. While I respect the more layered characters that actors are able to play when it comes to vampire movies, as you both have stated, there tends to be thematic weight and social relevance to the best zombie movies, which makes them more intriguing to me overall. Well, you can vote in that poll and tell us how wrong we are for preferring zombie movies by voting in the poll over at filmspotting.net, where you can leave a comment. This week on our sister podcast, Josh, The Next Picture Show, they've got part two of their Parent Traps pairing, Miranda July's Kajillionaire, which they've paired up with Yorgos Lanthimos' debut Dogtooth, we strongly recommend that you give a listen to The Next Picture Show, hosted by Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. They drop new episodes every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support the show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. It's five bucks a month, and here's what you get. Ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early show downloads, live presales and discounts, a merch discount, and monthly bonus episodes. We're going to record October's episode, actually, Adam, right after this. It's on formative political movies. Are you ready for that? I'm as ready as I'm going to be. We did have a family member who questioned the validity of the polling. Oh, I can't believe it. Yeah, calling shenanigans saying there's really no way family members wanted formative political movies to win. And I think, Josh, we would say we're equally shocked that this movie won. But not only did it tie with the movie Clueless when it went up against three other topic candidates. That family members can vote on. Yeah, which family members voted on. And they said Clueless and formative political movies were clearly the top two options. So we put them against each other in a death match. And 55% of our family members voted for formative political movies. So I'm just going to say everything's on the up and up because it would not have been the topic we chose. But now that we're about to record it, I'm actually looking forward to it. That's it. If there were shenanigans, it would have been clueless. It would have (laughs) been. Because you and I were leaning that way. But yeah, this will be good. That'll be fun. We also offer our family members monthly trivia spotting opportunities. We have done three of these. We want to thank everyone who participated in last week's trivia spotting, the Zoom ultimatum. Quite a star-studded lineup of guests. Director David Wayne joined us. The award-winning comics writer Tom King was part of trivia spotting. Blank checks Griffin Newman, Keith Phipps from the aforementioned Next Picture Show, and we are already planning. In fact, tickets are already on sale as of the time this show drops, Josh, for trivia spotting for 
the voyage home, <laughs> which will which will take place Friday, November thirteenth. I know that we are really eager to do it again. It's always fun. Well, this time will be fun for me, Adam. I'll be defending my title. You you failed to mention oh, which team. Yeah. Which team won? Yeah, how so, did I overlook so that let in me my notes? R- remind you, I was captain of the Hubie Halloweeners, and yes, we took home the prize. Now you were skeptical about how much I was personally contributing to that win, Adam. Fair um, to say. That was entirely fair of you to be skeptical about. I was by far the worst person on our team as evidence of that. You're going to love this. Jason Montgomery, film spotting family member, team member, a Hubie Halloweener himself. He and I, there was a pantheon, a film spotting pantheon related question. And he and I differed a little bit on which way we should go, (laughs) thankfully, because Jason has been listening longer than I've been on the show. That's right. (laughs) Thankfully, we went with Jason's gut got the correct answer, took home the win. Mm. I am curious to hear at some point, you can tell me off air so as not to embarrass yourself, which trilogy (laughs) you thought was in the film spotting pantheon that wasn't the Apu trilogy or the before trilogy. Well, embarrass myself. I did that publicly in the lightning round when I failed to be able to answer who is the director of Casablanca. Right. You did. I, you did I, miss that one. Thank you for I embarrassing had, yourself. Like I had Michael right there. And then Curtiz was like, I think it was buried way back behind. I, I don't know, like Cliff Levingston's playoff stats for the Chicago Bulls in the 90s <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> now, I, I had this in my notes, too. I wanted to clarify. Are you sure it wasn't Hubie's Halloweenies? Uh, that the is Hubie Halloweenies. That is where our wonderful host Thomas Todd, who who rarely makes mistakes, uh, he he did not correctly transcribe our team name. Oh, I name. like that name better. So, I yeah, think you should have gone with that. It's officially uh, Hubie Halloweeners Trivia Spotting Champions. Yeah, well, I can't believe I'm only going to add fuel to your fire here, the ego that has now been boosted by your Trivia Spotting win. Jason Montgomery was a team member of mine on the original trivia spotting. Mm. And he did mostly, as I recall, carry our team, but I obviously held him back from victory. (laughs) It took him partnering with you to finally get a trivia spotting win. Well, good to know he now has a favorite film spotting host. (laughs) Along with all of these benefits, we do have a new patron goal we're offering. When we get to 1,000, we're going to do another virtual screening. It's basically a chance for you to watch a movie along with us while we talk over the top of it. What could be better than that? Annual memberships are now available as well. If you don't want to do the monthly contribution, you can get a 10% discount by paying for the year in advance. Patreon.com slash film spotting. We've already ruined out of sight, Adam. When we get to a thousand, we'll ruin something else. That's it. It's time for Massacre Theater now, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A few shows ago, we had some guest actors, guest singers, Andy Wilkowski and Jamie Van Eyck. They massacred this scene. Oh, this is my favorite aria. It's Maria Callas. Sandria Chenier. Umberto Giordano. This is Madalena. She's saying how during the French Revolution, a mob set fire to her house. And her mother died, saving her. She's The place that cradled me is burning. 
That was Tom Hanks, along with a recording of Maria Callas in 1993's Philadelphia, written by Ron Niswanner and directed by Jonathan Demme. Also on that show, along with that massacre, was our top five Mozart movie moments and an 8 from 84 review of Amadeus. So why that scene from Philadelphia, Dylan Dom in Blair, Nebraska, says the tie-ins to this week's episode are, of course, all of the opera seen in Amadeus, but also Philadelphia is a choice on your poll question about the greatest courtroom drama. Quick aside, as a newly licensed attorney, I found out I passed the bar about a month ago. Congratulations, Dylan. My vote has to go to Lamette's The Verdict. It does the best job of any film I've seen of showing the sometimes harsh realities of the legal profession. Also, Milos Forman directed what could be a great other option in the poll, The People versus Larry Flint. Finally, a tie-in to a film from this week's Top 5. Tom Hanks was offered the role of Andy Dufresne in The Shawshank Redemption, but had to decline because he was making Forrest Gump, which got him his second consecutive Best Actor Oscar, the first of which he won for the role heard here in Philadelphia. A quick thank you is in order as well for doing this review of Amadeus, as it finally gave me the kick that I needed to catch up with it. I absolutely adored the film and your review of it, and now I've seen every Best Picture winner since 1971. Here's Mikhail Pretzman Larson from Copenhagen. Larson with an E, I love it. I actually wrote to you because I once knew a movie you massacred, Eureka. Sadly, not because of the acting, but fittingly because the music gave it away. I was about 12 years old when I saw Tom Hanks playing Andrew Beckett dancing and translating La Mama Morta to Denzel Washington's Joe Miller. The light changes to red as Andrew turns inwards and Joe finally sees him for what he is, a human being. The movie is, of course, Philadelphia by the late, great Jonathan Demme. I cried as a boy when I saw this the first time, and I still do. This, like Amadeus, was a jumping-off point to the great wonders of classical music. This aside, here's a connection to your 8 from 84. Jonathan Demme directed the amazing concert document Stop Making Sense, which came out in 84, and this ties in well together with the coming release of American Utopia, directed by Spike Lee. I suppose this is where I stop my rambling. So, Josh and Adam, thank you for every week. You make my morning rides. Stay safe across the pond. So, he started that with, I actually wrote to you because I once knew a movie you massacred, because what he started his email with was correcting all the times we butcher any Danish pronunciation. Mm, I can't believe we have ever done that, Adam. And I'm guessing he's now going to have to write us again to tell us how you butchered his name, which clearly as a relative of Mikkel's, that is problematic, Josh. Mikkel? Mikkel? That's not it? That's not good? I mean, you know, it's close. I I hope you got Larson right anyway. (laughs) Well, who knows how they say it back in the Scandinavian homeland. Exactly. I'm sure just like in Ordit, the D is silent. Josh, reach into the not very brimming film spotting hat. I think we really threw some folks, including the people who heard the Al Pacino version we played for fun last <laughs> week and thought, oh, it's the devil's advocate. It was not the devil's advocate. It was Philadelphia. Reach in and pick out this week's winner. Willie Rosado from Ashburn, Virginia. Congratulations, Willie. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting T-shirt. Dracula requires presence. It, it's all in the eyes and the voice and the head. That's right. That's right. You seem a little agitated. You want to go outside and get some air? I'm ready now. Roll the camera. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. I'm pre-laughing at your funny voice, so <laughs> wow. high expectations. Yes. High expectations. Well, you know, whenever the lines of dialogue are written out by Sam in the script phonetically, that's promising, right? Yeah, it is. And there is probably... A decidedly obvious reason why Sam suggested this choice this week for Massacre Theater, I don't know what it is, and I'm not going to think about it, Josh, because we're just going to jump into the scene. 
a couple notes. As usual, when there are names in the scene, we don't want to make it too obvious. So we've changed those names, but there might be some hints in those name change choices. Mm -hmm. Additionally, there's at least one other voice in this part of the scene that we did cut out because we are but two people and we saw what happened the last time you played four voices, Josh. Yes. It was a nightmare. (laughs) You were in your head for a week and (laughs) still recovering. (laughs) That's right. So it's just the two of us and you started off, man, no warm up at all. You just got to jump in. I'm going to give you the action. Let's go. And action. So this is a very popular cock with many of the fashionable weddings, you know? And this, I just don't do it anymore. And this is fabulous. Well, what is that? Is is that dollars? $1,200? Well, this is a very reasonable price for a cock of this magnitude. A cake, Ed, is made of flour and water. My first car didn't cost $1,200. Well, <laughs> welcome to the 90s, Mr. Navin. And, and scene. scene. Now, I'm pretty sure I was doing a Star Wars prequel character there. I yeah. just, I'm not sure which one. I was going to say, or someone out of a Raiders of the Lost Ark movie mixed oh, yeah. with Bronson Pinchot from Beverly Hills Cop. It is not <laughs> there you Beverly go. Hills Cop, no. but... But maybe these two characters are related. Mm, yeah. And it's not if a Star you know Wars movie film, either. <laughs> no. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, November 2nd. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of whacks. Quelli che non si divertono mai neanche quando ridono, oh yeah. Quelli che fanno un lavoro d'equipe, convinti di essere stati assunti da un'altra vita, oh yeah. It's a clip from Lena Wertmuller's Seven Beauties. Wertmuller, the sixth subject of our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon, all women directors, we should note, overlooked by us and by... A fair number of cinephiles probably out there. Seven Beauties, though, not overlooked by the Academy. It nominated her for four Oscars back in 1977, including one for Wirt Mueller herself, making her the first woman nominee in the Best Director category. By the time she received that nomination, she'd been directing features for over 10 years, going back to 1963's The Lizards. She did start her film career as an assistant director for Fellini on Eight and a Half. Seven Beauties stars Giancarlo Giannini as a World War II deserter who is captured and sent to a German prison camp. Through a series of flashbacks, we learn about his past, including the seven beauties of the title, a reference to his seven sisters, as well as his imprisonment for murder, his stay at an asylum, and then his escape into the army. Josh, I've never been able to ask you this before. Alluded to it earlier. Explain your emoji. Hmm, the yikes emoji. Yeah. Well, let me confess, I was a little worried about this one, Adam. Um, Right when I saw that we were going to include this in the marathon, I I do have some very limited previous experience with Wirt Mueller, and uh, you're never going to believe what it was for. Do you recall at all 2002's Swept Away, Guy Ritchie directing his then-wife, Madonna, a remake of the Wirt Mueller film? And isn't, is Giannini in it? He might be my memory of Swept Away. Why do I feel like he appears in it? (laughs) He might be. But I didn't Um, see it. 
Yes. I'm looking at the credits right now. There's an Adriano Giannini. Um, oh. So I'm not sure. Maybe he is. Maybe he has a cameo that I'm forgetting. Um, I, I found the original Swept Away to be... I had issues with it, and what I remember mostly is that there was a lot of cruelty in the film. Now, I think what we should also say, despite that plot synopsis, is if listeners have not been playing along and haven't seen Seven Beauties yet, this is a broad comedy, right? Despite everything we just described, um, this is mostly operating in the tone of farce, and Giannini is giving a very broad theatrical comic performance yes. in and of itself, yes. not a bad thing, but you can already tell by stating that, that there is a, a jarring, maybe not a disconnect for some viewers. Um, but for me, it was a bit of a disconnect with that tone and the subject matter and how Wirt Mueller navigates it. Now, I will also preface that to say, I am a person who doesn't think that all copies of Life is Beautiful should be burned. I have issues with it, um, mostly about the sentimentality. Um, I am a staunch defender of Jojo Rabbit, which was also accused of being insensitive to the topic of Nazism and having any sort of lighthearted approach to that. Just to say, like, I'm not writing this movie off based on what it's trying to do. That said, I had a lot of trouble with how Seven Beauties managed this combination of farce and political commentary. I think this movie is very smart and has tons of ideas going on here. Um, so it's not for lack of intelligence or ambition, but it does come back to that cruelty for me. It was very difficult for me to see a movie that at its best is, I would say, maybe a confession of Italian complicity in the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, totally can see that reading. But I think it's very difficult for me to... Um, watch a film that even if it's operating on that grounds so much of its humor and cruelty towards particularly the women characters. Um, and that's where the disconnect was for me beyond the fact that I just didn't find the juxtapositions of the concentration camp scenes and the flashbacks to, um, Pasqualino, the Giannini's characters, comic time earlier in Naples, I, 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 it was just too, the disconnect was too big for me. I can't wait hmm. to hear what you made of this film. Well, first, IMDb tells me that Giancarlo Giannini did appear in the original Swept Away in 1974, directed oh, yeah. by Wurt Mueller, does for not sure. show up in the Guy Ritchie remake, which I have not seen. I did have a different experience than you did with this film. That disconnect wasn't one I felt as strongly. I do understand it. I'm certainly not going to sit here and tell you that you are wrong, but this is one of those movies, Josh, that I think if I had seen it out of the context of our marathon, might have had a completely different experience with it. But as it is, there was a movie earlier in our marathon that I think put me in the perfect mindset and, and oh, just sure. set me up Daisies. for this film. And that's Daisy. Absolutely. Right. So right away, I felt like I knew what this film and I knew what Wurt Mueller was trying to do. And yes, I'm sure you're going to point out all the ways that Daisy's is a superior film, but it's certainly a more experimental one from a narrative standpoint, but both take some similar aesthetic risks. They had that same kind of anarchic, darkly comet spirit to them. With Josh standalone opening sequences, oh yeah, that really clearly established that spirit, which I think and is great in Seven Beauties. By the way, this opening yeah, I really love. Both of those sequences are firmly rooted in war, including war footage and mm-hmm. ideological conflict and politics. Both films, I would say, are similarly 
we could get into the nuances of this, but are similarly sex obsessed. And I was looking back at my Daisy's notes and I noted that one of the refrains of the movie is it doesn't matter. None of it matters. There's definitely a strain of futility and cynicism that is similar in these two movies. Points of view that are rooted in the idea of seeing the world to go back to the word you use, Josh, as farce. That's really what it is, I think, in both films. And I think our hero here, and I definitely am putting hero in quotes, Pasqualino, I think he easily could be one of the men, Marie 1 and Marie 2, are tormenting in daisies and exposing the hypocrisy of. And I think Chitloba in daisies, through the Maries, she makes us confront the farce. She makes us confront the horror mixed with absurdity. And in Seven Beauties, we have Pasqualino he functions similarly. He's not a provocateur like them, but he is an embodiment of society's ills. And I think like Marie one and two, he's almost an allegorical figure. I think you suggested it. he kind of stands in for for Italy itself in a lot of ways. And he's this walking contradiction like his name even suggests. And we get the backstory about his sisters and the idea that they're seven beauties. That's certainly not how Wurtmuller frames them literally frames them in this film, but he's this man who's obsessed with honor, who's willing to commit really ghastly acts in the name of honor, who nevertheless is really just a petty thief who dishonors himself and his family every day with everything he does. And like Il Duce, like Mussolini, he fashions himself as a big man, an important man who's full of just bluster and bravado, but really is minus any actual thought. And By the time we get to the scene where he's at a railway station and he's talking to another man who's heading off to to prison, who calls himself a socialist, and they start talking politics, and we hear Pasqualino say, and I'm going to paraphrase and steal some different lines here, but he starts talking about how he thinks Il Duce is pretty great. All the other countries are jealous of our leader. Listening to the man speak to us, that voice and those eyes, our people are respected now. They used to spit at us Italians. It sure sounded really eerily familiar to me. And this idea of empowering people who believe themselves, who misperceive themselves to be victims, it was it was way too relevant and way too timely for my taste right now, this close to the election. But it still did give this movie weight for me. Yeah, Daisies was absolutely on my mind from those opening moments. And as you talk about the two in relation to each other, it does help me clarify, for me at least, what is sort of a key distinction in why Daisies worked for me and this didn't. And it's that idea of exposing the men in Daisies um, Mm -hmm. that is kind of the main point of those two characters and the perspective the movie puts us in. Here, it's not that Wurtmuller thinks Pasqualino is the hero totally see him as he's supposed to be a clown, a buffoon, a stand-in. Yet the movie is still so delighted with him. Just so delighted with his antics and his silliness. Hmm. And And you really sense that in the contrast with daisies and the men there. And you know what else is helpful to me as I was um, watching this? Think about, so Fernando Ray has a small part here, right? Right. Uh, Star of Luis Buñuel's films. And those also, I think, we can look at many of Buñuel's films as being um, broadly comic, political farces in a lot of ways. Similar style to here, uh, thematic concerns, similar. We mostly praised all of those. Um, and here, I like that Fernando Rey plays his subplot. He's a, another prisoner in the concentration camp, is the man of disorder, right? That's what he mm-hmm. kind of calls himself. I think that 
those films, the Boonwell films, and Daisy's as well, have a little bit more distance from their satirical subjects. And I do think that Seven Beauties, for my taste, is just too in love with Giannini. Um, and I think this goes to the fact that Wirtmuller worked with him in so many films. Like, he's a muse. And, and even when he is supposed to be the clown, he's still... There's an admiration, at least for the performance, that comes through and that complicates things. Um, and I don't think Bunuel ever had, you know, his work could be angry and sort of sardonic, but I don't think it ever had cruelty. And you you touched on it a little bit when you were describing how uh, Pasqualino's sisters are even framed at this film. I mean, pretty much almost every woman we see is depicted as a grotesque. And the, the one of the main plots here is Pasqualino, this concentration camp is run by a female commander. And one of his scams he's going to try to pull is to seduce her in order to earn favors and to live. And, you know, it, it, mileage will vary if that is tasteless just when you hear me say it, or if you think it's funny as it's played out. I found it pretty painful, but one reason is that this woman is presented as another grotesque. And that's part of the cruelty I'm talking about here, where there is um, just so much disdain for all these other characters in a way that there isn't for Pasqualino at all. Not to say it's loving him or, or saying he's a good guy, but there's just such a, a bemusement with him. And I was looking, you know, I did look up some early reviews of Seven Beauties just to get a sense here because I knew of the Oscar nominations. And it's like, am I just in the wrong era here? Like, am I watching this too much through 2020 eyes? And you did find someone like Ellen Willis writing in Rolling Stone saying that Wirtmuller is a woman hater who pretends to be feminist. Now that's really strong, but having watched this movie, I can, I can see what she's getting at. Um, or even Pauline Kael, who, who wrote the box office success of this film represents a triumph of insensitivity. And again, that mileage can vary. Maybe you won't find this insensitive. Um, there's one more I want to share just because it's interesting in that it references another marathon figure. This is David Thompson, and here he's writing about Wirtmuller in the Biographical Dictionary of Film. And he says her brief rage in America, meaning popularity in America in the mid-70s, was probably inevitable in a country ravenous for a female purveyor of small cultural artifacts. How sad. Stephanie Rothman, Chantal Ackerman, there you go, and Yvonne Rayner say, could feast on the attention given erroneously to the Italian lady and her woeful lumpen lapdog, Giancarlo Giannini. So some strong words there, too, and maybe it'll give us a foray more into Giannini's performance. But I can resonate with what's being expressed in all, all those takes on this movie, um, even if I also admire, again, the intelligence and the the ideological framework it's giving us, uh, which is similar to Daisy's. Yeah, I'm actually bringing up here, Josh, before you, a book from my time as a student where I took a class on Italian cinema, and it really did focus mainly on post-war Italian cinema. I got out one of my old textbooks, and there is a small section devoted to Lena Wertmuller that's actually called The Case of Lena Wertmuller, and it's written by Mira Liem. And it says basically that, you know, in Italy, kind of properly not really revered. And it's really only a lot of American critics huh, who interesting. really gave her a lot of exposure and who seemed to adore her. And it's very critical. It really only has one paragraph about this movie, but Miriam talks about parody and says that as a style, it's one that can be used for original purpose. And if it's not, it degenerates. 
And she says that's what happened when Wurtmuller turned for inspiration to Cavani, to Pasolini's Salo, and the Nazi porno films of the 70s in Seven Beauties. The parody was diluted by Wurtmuller's lack of her own inspiration, and it could not support her attempt to create a more profound metaphor. So definitely there are detractors, but I can also quote some critics myself who did support this movie and were fans of it, including Roger Ebert. Who yeah, said, he loved it. Who said Seven Beauties isn't the account of a man's fall from dignity because Pasqualino never had any, and that's what makes it intriguing. And I don't know that you, Josh, would even necessarily debate that other than considering how intriguing it is, but that would be the counter to everything you're saying, which which rings true in a lot of ways, of course, but you could argue that for Wertmuller, she's actually reflecting a really accurate sense of the male gaze and the way the world and the Pasqualinos of the world do perceive all of these women. And they can only be in this landscape through that type of lens, grotesques. Mm. And I hear what you're saying, that he's someone who the movie seems kind of delighted with. I guess I would say I also see him, and I know you agree that he's not shown to be heroic, but the overriding feeling I have watching him at all times in the movie is just how pathetic he really is. And I think that if any of that delight comes through, my argument would be, well, that's that's what satire kind of does require. It it needs that provocation. It needs to be complicated. It needs to to have that kind of conflict within us as we watch. And I think that the same way Daisies was a movie that held up a mirror to society. This is a movie I'm going to use parody in a little bit of a different way here because I'm not reflecting on the films of the 70s because I'm not reflecting on Italian cinema specifically, but it kind of works as its own parody when I just see Pasqualino as this guy who's striving so hard to be like Alain Delon from La Samurai, right? But he's also Charlie Chaplin's little tramp to me, right down to the mustache. So you've got on one hand, he's got the fedora and he'll tilt it just so and he'll stand a certain way and he'll walk around town like he's this kind of big man. And we just know it's all fraudulent. It's all an act. It's all a parody of that type of image. And he carries a gun so people will respect and fear him. But as we see, he really is this this weak man who mostly gets pushed around, who uses his eyes and his eyebrows really expressively yeah. to to express that patheticness, to to show some sadness, to show some vulnerability. He's usually trying to get something for that expression of sadness. And even, Josh, the the crime he commits of disposing of a victim's body, he first kills him, and then he has to dispose the victim's body, and there's flatulence involved. I mean, this is straight out of vaudeville, and, and certainly straight out of Chaplin and Keaton, sending parts all over Italy. It's really ghastly. It's a macabre version of that, but there was a silent movie aspect to his performance, a cartoonish aspect to his performance that I did find pretty striking, especially then when you framed it against the horror of not only the things he's doing, but the world is doing around him. And in seeing this trajectory in him, not really from from a person who becomes that more worldly wise or who certainly becomes that much more sympathetic as a character, but just someone who finally actually has to experience what 
what real evil, what real wickedness really is, and who does finally have to get his hands dirty. That journey was provocative to me. Well, that scene you mentioned where, and it's a flashback, um, you know, before the war where he's trying to dismember this body of a man he shot. I think that's kind of the in or out moment for this movie, not because of the scene itself, but because of what immediately precedes it. And this is intentional. It's just one of the things that doesn't work for me. We we have just been looking at repeated images, ghastly images of victims who have been killed in the concentration camp, their bodies just strewn mm-hmm. about the prison. And Wurtmuller goes again purposefully from that those bodies to this body that Pasqualino is comically having to dismember. So if that if that transition is going to be provocative in a way you find like intellectually stimulating, Seven Beauties is going to work for you. And I would mm-hmm. agree, I you know, Giannini, he has an absolute clownish appeal. This this may yeah. not be my preferred style of comic acting, but um you can tell he is so gifted at it. As you said, from using his face to his whole body, the physicality to the the different voices he used depending on who mm-hmm. he's trying to con. I mean, the guy's deeply gifted at this sort of thing. Um, but again, the disconnect comes when he applies those tools towards a scene back at the mental institution where he's wandering around, comes across a woman patient who's, who's in restraint, strapped to a bed, can't do anything. And he rapes her and it's again, played for comedy. And for me, I'm watching Mm. this and it goes, that's not my sense of it, Josh, the the same sort of things you're talking about where Wurtmuller is emphasizing his expressions that you just described as being comic, the way he's a fool and we're not meant to take him seriously. That That's what's being done in this scene. And that scene and too many of these in the movie for me just end up kind of like the movie ends up saying, that's silly Pasqualino. You know, look at what yeah. he's up to now. No, I, I get what you're saying. But I would say even within that very sequence, mileage is going to vary or mileage may vary because as I saw it, I didn't see those Chaplin-esque expressions at all. And I thought it was really key that Wurt Mueller puts the camera where she does for most of that scene, which is right down basically on the on the chest or right next to the head of the woman who's being violated. And those expressions coming from him are much more purely terrorizing. There was nothing humorous about any part of that at all. It it was it was captured or rendered exactly the way, I guess for lack of a better word, you would hope it would be. I really have to disagree. And and honestly, if if the provocation is what this movie, to its credit, is meaning to do, then it can't pull its punches in that scene. Then it's got to go all the way. And I think it does go all the way. And I'm just showing the monster that he is, too. Yes, uh, I I think it's trying to be as provocative in that scene by pushing it. Um, And so I I just if it's provocative for you in a way that's stimulating, it's got to be all the way through. I don't think she's pulling her punches anywhere here. I think she's doubling down and really challenging us. And, And I guess it's just one of the moments where I had to kind of throw up my hands and say, you know, not working for me. Well, it's really hard to discuss even scenes like that because there's also almost nothing about it that worked for me in the moment, right? Like it's very hard to watch that scene. You even know where it's probably going. The second he walks by the room and hears a woman's voice and starts to then peep around the curtain, you think, and she's in restraints. You think, is Wurtmuller going to go here? I I would rather not watch this. 
certainly I would rather not watch it. There was sure, nothing sure. to use your word stimulating about it. But in terms of the scope of the film, reflecting that that male gaze, that male point of view, that kind of domineering, dominating presence that just says, I can use this thing, this woman lying here for whatever purpose I want, seemed consistent to me with a lot of the other horror we see in Seven Beauties. And on that line, now I'm sure everyone listening can't wait to see it, Josh. Yeah, we've, <laughs> we've really sold this one, haven't we? <laughs> Seven Beauties is available to rent on demand on Prime and Vudu. You can also look for it at your local library or through interlibrary loan. I think it's a canopy option. I couldn't find my library card, Josh, so I couldn't actually bring up my subscription. But But it was available on demand on my TV anyway. Yeah, I got it through the library, the DVD, so it is out there. Next week, we will wrap up the Overlooked Auteurs Marathon with 1991's Daughters of the Dust, and we'll roll out the red carpet for our marathon awards. If you have been following along and you have a good suggestion for what we should call the awards, please do share that. Feedback at filmspotting.net. That's also the address you can send any comments about this episode, because Josh, we are at the end of it. We are. You can also send us feedback on social media, Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you'll find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And on the website, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll, movies about vampires or movies about zombies. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter. Out in limited release this weekend, I'm just going to say it, Josh, you know what? These descriptions, they're not as amusing as last week's. The Empty Man, the first night you hear him, the second night you see him, the third night he finds you. With James Badgedale. <laughs> that one's just kind of confusing. Yeah, and, you know, I tried to make it creepy, probably didn't quite work. Synchronic is out. Two New Orleans paramedics encounter a series of horrific deaths linked to a designer drug. Anthony Mackie and Jamie Dornan star in that one. It's from the directors of 2017's The Endless. On digital, Amazon Prime, you can see Borat's subsequent movie film. Alas, not recommended by Borat lover Josh Larson. But because, moon, because I'm a Borat lover, I would encourage I people to give it a try. Okay. Um, again, you, you yeah. might find it cathartic. Josh, this is the end of the show. There's no time Sorry. to get into oh, now, all of these details. Now okay? we have a time limit. <laughs> That's right. And <laughs> and you very clearly didn't recommend it, so just deal with it. Over the Moon is also out. A girl builds a rocket to travel to the moon in hopes of meeting the moon goddess. We're just going to stop there. That's on Netflix featuring the voices of John Cho, Philip Sue, and Margaret Cho. And then Bad Hair is out from the director of Dear White People, Justin Simeon. That is on Hulu. And that movie will get some time next week on the show. It's also going to inspire our top five high concept horror movies plus the finale as we said to our overlooked auteurs marathon daughters of the dust and our marathon awards film spotting is produced by golden joe Dassault and sam van hogren without sam and golden joe this show wouldn't go our production assistant is kat sullivan thanks also to candace griffiths and the listeners of the film spotting advisory board and special thanks to everyone at wbez chicago more information is available at wbez.org our music this week is from Wilder Embry. More information is at wilderembry.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
I just, just for a second, even though there's nothing new about this, I'm just going to acknowledge the hilarity of there being a show on the radio, even Friday night at midnight in, seven, in the year of seven our beauties in the year of our Lord 2020. <laughs> that's like up next. Yes. Lena Wertmuller, seven beauties. The, this the, is the, the radio content you all need and deserve. We're going to look at a movie from 1977 that no one talks about anymore. Adam, this is why we're the global hit that we are. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> film spotting is listener supported. Join the film spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire film spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.